all things land development, planning and property. This is Property on Fire with Ian Walmsley. To find out how Ian can help you, visit propertyonfire.co.uk. Hello and a very warm welcome to this week's episode of Property on Fire. I just wanted to start with a massive thank you to everyone who has messaged me to say how glad they are that I'm back. Thank you guys. But if you do like this podcast, if you could do me one little teeny favour please, or quite a big, big favour I guess, but that is if you could please rate the podcast on your favourite app, it would be most appreciated. I'm lining up some great guests for the weeks ahead, so if you're into property and you fancy being a guest on this podcast in the weeks and months ahead, then please do get in touch. And having read some of the wonderful reviews that others have left, it's quite clear that an awful lot of people learn a fair bit from these podcasts, either from myself wittering away or from the guests that I have on it. Okay, so what do we have coming up on today's episode? As is often the case, I've had a few questions sent in. What a surprise. And I love receiving your questions. I really, really do. So if you've got questions, then please feel free to email them. You can email me direct at ian at propertyonfire.co.uk. You can reach out to me on social media. I don't mind. However you want to get in touch, then please feel free to use that medium. So I'll be answering those questions. And I'm going to have a little bit of an update on the British Gas Saga from last week. So if you didn't hear my rant about British Gas, then please do download and listen to episode 21. And I'll have a question for you. Is the bubble about to burst? So without further ado, let's get started. But before we do, please do like, review and subscribe to this podcast and come with me on this property journey. You'll probably be aware that from the 1st of April, the cost of power is going to rise dramatically due to the raising of the price cap. This will increase by a stonking 54%. I know that I have just received details of the increased prices on my own home, and it does seem that the bulk of the increases is actually in the daily standing charge rather than the actual supply of the gas or electricity. Now, whether this means that alternative suppliers are going to be cheaper because the standing rate will be lower, I don't know at the moment. But being a bit of a geek, uh, I'll probably just check them just to make sure I'm not overpaying. However, if you're running an HMO, House of Multiple Occupation, or Service Accommodation, SA for short, or something else where the cost of power is built in, you're going to need to consider how to factor in those price rises. Now, if you're running an SA or service accommodation, you are obviously going to be able to increase your costs almost immediately for future bookings. However, if you're running an HMO, it's not quite as simple, is it? If your tenants are on a standard AST, then for the first six months, you're not going to be able to increase your prices. In reality, what you're going to find with this price increase of power is probably an increase I reckon of up to about £10 per room per week. Now that is £35 to £40 per room within an HMO. Now if we multiply that by six you're starting to run into some serious increase in costs. So I guess if you've got tenants moving in before April I would probably increase that rent in advance to take account of that. But unfortunately for existing tenants, you are going to have to wait until that six-month period actually expires. 
Now, in addition to the increased energy costs, other services are also going up. Many contracts allow for something like 3.9% above either the retail price index, or RPI for short, or the consumer prices index, CPI for short, for January. This will take effect probably, I guess, in about April time on services such as broadband and similar things. Now, the RPI was 7.8% in January, whilst the CPI, Consumer Prices Index, rose by 5.5%. Now, if we add that 3.9% on top of either of those, you can quickly see that a lot of these costs are probably going to rise by roughly 10%. Now, whilst this may only be, what, two or three pounds per month, these costs will soon start adding up and all of this will need factoring into your budget to ensure that you remain in profit, whether that be an HMO, service accommodation or anywhere else that supplies are included within it. Why not take a moment to let me know how you're going to cope with the price increases this spring? Now, in a few minutes, I'll have another one of my famous or is that infamous rants but if you were listening to the last episode episode 21 of property on fire you will know that i had a bit of a rant about british gas i have been battling them for over a year just to get a few accounts on one of my developments sorted out it wasn't complicated all i wanted was plot 13 changing to flat 14 plot 14 changing to flat 15 etc not complicated you wouldn't have thought but for British Gas it seems it has been. So what's been happening in that saga? Almost immediately following the broadcast of the last episode of Property on Fire I had a nice email from Chris O'Shea. Now you might say who's Chris O'Shea? Well he's actually the CEO of Centrica. So Centrica owned British Gas and I guess Chris O'Shea is at the top there. But it was very nice for him to send me a personal email apologising and saying that he'll get in touch with a few people to try and get this sorted. I'm hopeful, maybe, if the wind's in the right direction and there's enough of that at the moment, I'm actually rather hopeful that we may finally get this sorted. But I'm not counting my chickens yet. We'll just have to wait and see and I'll keep you informed on a future episode of Property on Fire. Right, the bubble. Now, a question for you. Is the bubble about to burst? Or maybe it's already burst in some areas? Or will the prices keep on rising for another year or two? What do you think? As most of you will be aware, I'm quite often on Facebook and other social media, and I've lost track of how many times people have said over the last three or four years that prices are about to crash. And yet, they don't. The months and months go by, years go by, and prices are still continuing to rise. I'm fully aware that that cannot continue forever, and at some point there needs to be a correction in the market. But is it about to happen soon? I'm not so sure. As most of you will know, I'm also a developer, as well as loving my planning. And through our company, Leading Homes, we are obviously building a number of dwellings. Now, when you're actually setting your costs for that site and making your uh, GDVs and build costs and everything else you need to try and work out what those prices are going to sell for or what those properties are going to sell for in a year two years time 
And that's not an easy task. So more often than not, we have to be conservative in our estimations of our GDVs. And also, at the same time, we have to overcompensate for increases in supply costs. And those supply costs over the last year or so have risen dramatically. I probably need to look at around about £2,000 per square metre when I'm building. So you can see it is rather hard to judge in advance as to what's going to happen. I'm afraid I don't have a crystal ball. But do I think prices are going to crash? No, I don't actually. I think they are going to continue rising for another year or two. The other thing that we need to bear in mind is that prices differ throughout the UK. In London, where I'd probably expect to see the falls first, and there have been some falls of late, uh, but will that continue? I don't know. But down here where I am developing in the southwest of England, the prices over the last, I don't know, last 35 to 40 years have just slowly risen. There aren't massive peaks and troughs and so if you look at the chart they tend to just bubble along all right in an upwards fashion which is good but they bubble along other parts of the uk are obviously going to be completely different and we need to realize the fact that uh, we aren't all in london now that's probably just annoyed all the london listeners so apologies for that folks but there's obviously an awful lot who are not in london and their markets are usually totally different However, there is one factor that will keep pushing prices up, and that is demand. If the demand isn't there and the supply of properties on the market is low, then the prices will increase. And I still think there are many parts of the UK where that is a problem, that the number of properties coming onto the market is suppressed, and therefore the prices will continue to rise however i suspect as we continue to come out hopefully fingers crossed of covid and we learn to live with covid then i think that's going to change people will suddenly think mm, okay now's the time to move i think i've had enough i need a new home i need to restart my life and so i'm going to put my house my flat whatever onto the market and i think at this point we may actually see prices starting to fall in certain parts of the UK. I could be totally wrong. I could be talking complete nonsense. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think I'm talking complete nonsense? Do you think the bubble has already burst or is about to burst? Let me know. Just contact me via social media or any other platform and let me know what you think about prices in the UK. Am I right? Or am I wrong? On to the first of our questions in this episode of Property on Fire. And Jack has sent me an email to ask, he's found a guest house. He would like to change that into either flats or as an HMO. And what should he do? Well, first of all, thanks Jack for your question. Now, the first thing you'll need to do before you even look at anything else is to check what is called a proposals map. Now, it should be contained or attached to the local plan for your borough. So what I suggest you do is to go onto Google, type in your borough, so whatever that might be, Smithfields Borough, whatever that is, and then against that put 
proposals map. Now, that should hopefully, fingers crossed, pull up the proposals map. Open it up and try and find the guest house or the road or wherever that is and have a look. Now, what you're looking for or hopefully not finding is a hashed area which may well indicate a zone. Now, quite often, especially if the guest house is on the seafront or even perhaps on the main road coming off the seafront, you may well find that that guest house is zoned so that you can only actually have tourist use out of it. And if that is the case, converting that into residential is probably going to be rather hard. So that is the first step you need to do. Secondly, if you find that there are no restrictions as far as zoning is concerned, unfortunately, Jack, there isn't a permitted development route or PD route to take that from a guest house or boarding house, whatever it might be, into residential. So I'm afraid you are going to need a full planning application. But you do have a couple of routes here, depending upon what is viable. And I think that is key at the end of the day. So if you are going down the HMO route, I would do a little check, have a look on spare room or similar sites to that, and actually see what the demand is in that area for HMO rooms. What are they getting? How much is that building going to cost you to actually convert to that HMO? Just do all your figures and work them out first, Jack. And then once you've worked it out, have a look at your facts. What's it going to cost to actually convert that building into perhaps one, two, three or four flats? You'll need to assess all those costs before you can actually work out whether or not each of those is going to be viable. And as I said earlier in the podcast, Jack, please do take into account the increased build costs. As I said before, we are looking to build probably around about £2,000 per square metre. Yes, I know that that will vary for conversion, but those costs have risen. So if you're going to look on Facebook groups or other sorts of media and actually have a look where other people have quoted in the past, make sure those quotes are up to date. If in doubt, employ the services of a QS or quantity surveyor who can actually then give you a much better idea as to the costs that you're going to encounter to actually divide those up into a number of flats. If you're going down the HMO route, then especially if you're looking for six and below residents, so it's a standard C4 HMO, then I would probably look to convert that into one single dwelling. Then using your permitted development rights of class L, you can take your C3 dwelling and change it to a C4. That C4 will kick in as soon as you move your third tenant in. Until that point, either with one or two tenants, it will remain a C3. Now, of course, you need to make sure you are not in an Article 4 area. So also check that on the maps from the local authority. So go into the local authority website, because that may be more up to date than the local plan. Just go in there and make sure that your road or that area is not an Article 4. Because if it is you're not going to have Class L rights to go from C3 to C4. In theory, Jack, you could also divide that property into, say, two flats or even three flats. 
and then in each of those use your class L rights to change those into a small HMO. That may only be three or four residents perhaps per dwelling. That is another option that you may wish to look at. But whichever route you choose, Jack, I would always have a plan B and maybe a plan C. That if, for example, you think, great, I'm going to go an HMO route and this is all hunky-dory and wonderful. Well, how does a C3 dwelling stack up as well? Will that work? What happens if next door, across the road, a large HMO is suddenly converted and opens before you're able to do your conversion? So perhaps the demand for yours may be less. What happens if you've overestimated your costs? or underestimated your costs. You'd need to just take all these into account and perhaps have that plan B, just to see in worst case scenario, what else you can do with that building. So I hope that makes sense, Jack. Now, obviously I don't know the size of your guest house, Jack. So, you know, giving exact advice is a little bit hard on here. So I'm having to second guess a little bit, but I do hope that helped you in your quest and I wish you all the best in that opportunity. A message from Sally, she's asked me, unfortunately my fence blew down in one of the recent storms and there seems to be a bit of a debate between myself and my neighbour as to who is responsible for the fence. Help Ian, how do I tell whether it's my fence or the neighbour's fence? I need to try and get it sorted because at the moment they're not paying for it and I don't see why I should pay for it either. Okay, Sally, thanks for your message. I think this is probably a question that a lot of people around the UK are probably asking themselves as to which is my fence and how do I tell which is my fence? Now, you'll get some people will say, if I stand at the back of the house, then it's the fence on the right or it's a fence on the left. Well, that really isn't a very good clue as to which is your fence because it can vary from garden to garden. What happens if you back on to someone's side fence? Who's the back fence? Is it shared? Well, you probably need to establish once and for all who actually owns each fence. Now, the only way that you are really going to be able to work that out, Sally, is by checking the deeds of your property. So you'll need to pull those out and have a look on the map and actually see as to who is responsible for your fence. Now, you'll see a little T mark, hopefully, against those fences, against the boundaries, and that will indicate as to who is responsible for that fence. If, having looked at your deeds, you see the T facing towards you, then that is your fence, Sally. However, if you see a T on both sides and this looks like an H in other words, then that is what we actually call a party wall or party fence. In other words, both people are equally responsible for that fence or wall or whatever it is dividing those properties. Almost all deeds these days will have the markers on them or it could well be a lease. Perhaps it's a leasehold property and so you'll need to check on the lease as well. So now what happens if you have a look at those deeds and you see a little map of your property with the surrounding ones, but there isn't any markers? Now in situations like this, then we have something called presumptions will come into play. 
And quite often what this means is if the fence posts are placed on the owner's land, then the chances are that is your fence. In other words, the good side of the fence is probably on your neighbor's side. Whilst this is not a cast iron guarantee, it is quite often very common, especially on older properties. But one thing you can't do, Sally, is just rely on the misconception that the fence to your left or to the right, depending upon which way you're standing, is the fence that you own. Always check your deeds. And folks, if you are lucky enough to not have had suffered any fences down in the recent storms, I'd probably take this time to actually check your deeds, check them in advance, just in case something happens with regards to your boundary in months ahead. I hope it doesn't, but you never know, it might do. And if you check now, it will save the stress and the issues later on. This is Property on Fire with Ian Walmsley. And now, Ian's rant. Well, my rant this week is to do with COVID. I don't know about you, but I am getting increasingly fed up with the number of companies who are still blaming COVID for the lack of service. I don't know, I often phone up these companies, as I did with British Gas, as I've tried to do with British Airways and a few other firms, and the first thing I hear on the phone is, sorry, but a lot of our staff are working at home because of COVID at the moment. And so your response times and our service is probably going to be affected as a direct result of that. Why? Yes, I realise that a lot of people are working from home, but this is not something that has happened over the last month or two. We are two years into this pandemic. This is nothing new. Isn't it about time that these companies stop putting COVID as an excuse for poor quality service? I don't know about you, but I am getting increasingly fed up with it. Week in, week out, I hear the same excuses from company after company, and it's wearing a bit thin. All I want is for a nice human being just to help me with whatever my query is, or even better, have the facility online. Then I don't even have to make a phone call. I can sit there, whether I'm in my pyjamas or not, I can sit there at any time of day or night I like, and I can make those changes online. But hey, more often than not, I can't. I have to phone a human being. So not only do I have to wait until Monday to Friday in a lot of cases, but then I have to sit in an endless queue waiting for somebody to answer the call. Now this call is probably bouncing from phone to phone to phone, from Scotland to Devon to Essex to Northumberland. I don't know, but I just need somebody to answer that phone and help me. I don't need to listen to excuses. Now, with companies already saying that the majority of their staff will continue to work from home, they have to start sorting this out. They have to start putting the customer first. At the end of the day, we're the ones who are paying for that service and we are the ones paying for the salaries at the end of the day. So come on, guys, please just help us out as a consumer and just give a service. We don't need to listen to excuses anymore. We've been listening to those for the last two years. Let's draw a line under it. Let's cut it out. And let's just 
give service. That is all we ask. Now, I must admit, there are a few companies who are very good. And in my area, Southwest Water, hats off to them. Because whenever I phoned their customer service line, I normally get through in probably a couple of minutes or so, three or four minutes. And I often speak to a very, very polite and helpful person. If Southwest Water can do it when I phone up, why can't other companies? I don't need excuses. I just want service. Is that too much to ask? Is that something that annoys you? It doesn't have to be property related. It can be life in general. Get it off your chest and just let me know and I'll be more than happy to take it up on your behalf. So you just contact me via any of the sources which I have. Email me, message me, whatever. Just let me know. Perhaps next week or next episode of Property on Fire, I'll read out your rant. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Property on Fire. A big thanks to Jack and to Sally for your questions this week. If I can help you in your property journey in 2022, then please do get in touch. Keep safe and we'll chat again in the next episode of Property on Fire. Until then, have a great week. Bye for now. Property on Fire with Ian Walmsley. Please use your podcast app to rate, review and subscribe to the show. And if you'd like a question answered on a future episode, email ian at propertyonfire.co.uk.